Tim Graham and Friends is brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and business consultants. CTBK is a leading accounting firm with a growing team of accountants and business consultants with roots in Amherst, New York. CTBK pairs every project with a focus on a human connection between its team and the client for assurance, accounting, taxes, litigation support, and advice on mergers and acquisitions, CTBK is available and ready to solve any issue your business faces. For a consultation or to request a quote, call 716-630-2400. Again, that's 716-630-2400. CTBK, over a quarter century of proven accounting and business excellence for Western New York and beyond. Matt. Welcome to Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK. Let's not waste any time and just it, we it's like a rolling stop. There are no stop signs when you talk to Jerry Sullivan, also known as the California stop, depending on uh, where you live. He just kind of rolls right through that stop sign. I was famous on the radio. Bucky would be introducing the show and I'd be talking. Well, here you are, Jerry Sullivan, Channel 4 and uh niagara gazette and uh he's here on the show uh to talk a little bit of this and that i, I want to start off with the sabers because you wrote a column for the niagara gazette regarding the sabers uh i could tell that you were feeling it as you were writing it as somebody who uh, reads your work all the time and uh i could feel the the well, passion is not quite the right word but i mean you you obviously when you get in a groove uh, you, you have a hard time, um, containing it. And I think it really comes through in your writing, which is what makes you so great. So, uh, let's, let's bring it just back. Uh, I think what you're saying is though I hadn't had, I don't get as many opportunities to crush the Pagulas as I used to. And that came through. Maybe, maybe that's it, but it was all there. It was, uh, your premise was that the Sabres are the worst organization in all of the major sports uh i'll just uh I'll, that'll be the wind up uh, your your thoughts to expound on here well and not to to pump myself up but it's a fact that i i often have better information than anybody in the country i swear i'm the only person in the country right now pointing out that elgin baylor rest in peace, died yesterday, is the third leading all-time scorer in the nba he's not just a great player who made all-star third behind Jordan and Chamberlain, okay? The other fact that I've seen be the only person that repeats as if it's some esoteric thing, the Sabres have more top 10 draft picks than any other team in hockey, 10. It was eight, two years ago, I thought, wow, it's now 10. The average per team is four. They're the worst team in the league. They're 10 points behind the second worst team in the league. So to call them the worst team in professional sports is Maybe too kind. I mean, if not them, who? You tell me the Sacramento t Kings have the best talent. They've had all these great drafts in that sport. Or the Seattle Mariners. Who cares about them? They're the worst team in pro sports. It's, I guess you it's could. Not even, it's not in dispute, although anybody could dispute it. All the people that like to hate me on Twitter. I'm just trying to throw out some options because you're asking me. Uh, let's just throw some out there. Washington football team. The fact that they're just even named football team is uh, might be. Uh, they're on the rise. They, of, what, they, seems to be. They almost made the playoffs. So you're answering your own question. Although oh, wait, or did they make the playoffs? They did make the playoffs. They did make the playoffs. They won right. their division. Well. So, I'll be like, right. 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 the Sabres done that. You were to stop calling them the Redskins, though. It's tough to find a combination of extended losing in the last 10 years and organizational dysfunction that matches the Sabres. There are, there are some that have one or the other, but they've had a random successful season. Um, the Jaguars come to mind as a pretty poorly operated franchise and they've had a lot of losing over the last 15 to 20 years they had a couple of random decent seasons but that was you know they had the one where they beat the bills in the playoffs and went to the afc championship game so i guess that by default makes them better than the sabers i can't think of too many others in football that are i mean there's too much parity in football to 
be as bad as the Sabres have been for as long. I mean, the Jets are a pretty lousy organization. The Lions, you know, really stink. Um, and they had a lot of top 10 picks too, right? Like to Jerry's point, like that's kind of what the Sabres are, is what the Lions the New York, are. How about the New York time. Mets? With everything that the Mets have gone through off the field and, and all of their embarrassments, maybe the Mets. Yeah, but they've won recently. I mean, yeah, the Sabres don't have a black guy on their organization in terms of misconduct like some of these other places do, like the Mets, like you talked about. Redskins. But still, uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of the on-field slash on-ice product, it's, it is pretty difficult to argue Jerry's point. And they don't have any kind of built-in excuse about a small market in, in some other sports. Maybe if you look at the Sacramento Kings, the rules are stacked against smaller franchises in, in other sports. And in hockey, Buffalo should be one of the best franchises in the NFL, in the NHL. So if you're grading it on a curve, uh, I think the Sabres are worse than some of these other franchises that have maybe built-in excuses. And they lost on purpose. And since then, I've had just all, you know, number one, number two, number two. And the Houston Astros tanked and won the World Series. Other teams have, have lost on purpose. The, well, the Sixers yeah, are doing a great job. Right. And when people defend the, the Sabres, to me, it's like, well, look at Houston Astros and Philly. Okay, fine. If you think the tank was okay, they're the worst team in hockey. And they lost on purpose. I do think the tank is okay because it does work, I think, more often than not in a lot of sports if you do it right. The problem was every other move the Sabres made after they tanked, I think, and and the culture that a lot of people brand that tank year, and I think it is more the culture that persisted coming out of that season. Yeah, They spend to the cap, too. It's less effective in hockey, too. One player doesn't mean as much. They have all these top 10 picks that Jerry talked about, but they also spend to the cap. They spend money on veteran players. They, they are, to Jonah's point, a team that does not lack for resources. Small market, sure, but, you know, a big-time hockey market, you know, probably the most, uh, you know, one of the best American hockey markets, top three, and owners who are willing to spend and have spent and have fired coaches and paid coaches to not coach. They, You can't have as many it's pretty difficult to have as many resources in the form of draft picks and money invested into a team and be this bad that's you know not easy to do in a league where what half the league makes the playoffs every year and they haven't been able to do it so yeah it's i don't know i think uh i think sully might be onto something here Oh, I, I'm, I think Sully's nailed it. And, uh, and I think a couple of points uh, that I'd like to make that underscore it. Uh, they have just lost their 14th straight game, which is their longest losing streak in franchise history. Uh, let's keep in mind that this is a team that had filed for bankruptcy and had its owners arrested uh, and was, had to be taken over by the NHL and Gary Bettman. So this team is worse than that. And also, and John Vogel has made this point a number of times, he'll post the lineups from the tank season or from a really bad season and say, that team would smoke this year's team. Uh, And so even a team that tried to lose on purpose, and it wasn't just trying to lose, they went rock bottom. They gutted the organization to try to get that number one draft pick. Um, And number two was a nice consolation. Yes. I mean, they were guaranteed one of two players. Um, but this season's team is way worse than even the team that tried to lose on purpose. And it's, uh, I don't know. What was your reaction, Jerry, to the Sabres decision to fire Ralph Kruger? Um, obviously, you know, that many consecutive losses, it had to happen, uh, at some point you knew he was done, but I don't know that this season it makes a difference. I think it was mostly just out of pride that they had to get rid of Ralph Kruger. It's not as though Donato uh, or Granado is going to come in and, and be the spark. Uh, if they were looking for that, then they should have made a move a month earlier. I don't Yeah, it was, it was arrogant at best to hire him with this idea. They're going to come up with a different idea instead of hiring a hockey person. And we were long, long overdue to get a, a hockey type person, you know, the names that are out there like a Boudreaux, uh, 
in the old days, Rick Dudley, anyone that would come in, the signature bad move they've made is now about seven, six, seven years old is what they did with LaFontaine. That encapsulated everything wrong with this team and this community and this media because people, one of the problems is the enablers in the local media who will swallow everything that the Sabres do and, and always assume the best of them. And the tank was the worst example of that. But when LaFontaine left here, people were quick to want, they wanted to believe that Patty had some mental problem. His problem was Kim Pagula. Maybe the fact that Kim is a woman makes, you know, covers them a little bit because you can't, you know, if you attack a woman nowadays, then, and I've seen what's happened at times, you know, with Harrington going after her, you know, oh, is it because she's a woman? It's because they're incompetent in running a hockey team. So I don't even know where, where I began with that, but, uh, Ralph, Pat LaFontaine. He was, just, he was just the latest victim, Ralph Kruger. The problem obviously goes to the top of the organization. The other people that get too much enabling is the players. I mean, the next the next Skinner contract, is that going to be Sam Reinhart? He's never won a thing. He's, he coasts at times. He's got a lot of skill, and because he's having a career year for the worst team in professional sports, they're going to give him a big contract? And when I suggest he's not worth it, I get crushed on Twitter. But you can't pay attention to Twitter because that's that's a community also that sort of falls into line here with the people who who will enable this team. Because if you're critical of the team, then you're a bad guy. Whatever. But if if they they should clean out all these guys, and I would even I'd be trying to move Eichel because he's going to want out badly at some point anyway, if not already. You were the only one that I read writing the Jeff Skinner column when they signed the contract, that it wasn't a good contract and it wasn't a good move. I think most people thought the Sabres either had to do that or were making a good decision extending his contract. And I remember at the time you said, you know, it was too much money. Well, I was on my, the radio show. It's like, what do you mean they had to do it? How can a responsible, critical media person buy that, that argument that you have to do stuff? Do you follow sports? You don't have to do anything. They didn't have to trade O'Reilly, which is where that started. Oh, he lost his passion for the game. Yeah, right. But because of that, you had to sign Skinner? Really? Go back and look at your comments if you, if you bought that argument and, and tell me how you have credibility as, as a hockey observer. You had to sign Thomas Vanek after losing Chris Drury and Daniel Briere. Oh. And I think that everybody looked back and said, boy, we wish we had all those draft picks if we hadn't matched uh, the Edmonton Oilers offer sheet. Uh, the, the Sabres would have had a boatload of picks uh, first rounders. Uh, yeah, you don't have to do anything, but you can be forced into it by, um, by fan sentiment or embarrassment. And, and it seems as though um, that the, the Pagulas have their hands forced a lot. Their big decisions or their big ideas uh, eventually get to such a point where they are forced to admit that they, that that it gets so bad. And now we're looking at, uh, you know, Kevin Adams in the goaltending situation, which is something that I think while Ralph Kruger was the head coach, uh, everybody could overlook because you could just point to Ralph Kruger. It's not working. Well, Ralph Kruger coaches the players that are available to him. And yes, uh, it's true that I'm sure he had quite a bit of influence on, on who was on that roster because Kevin Adams is a first year general manager. He's never done it before. But here they're in a situation where they don't have any goaltenders and they needed goaltenders before the season began and just neglected the position. They thought that they were going to be fine. Um, I mean, at what point do, do the, maybe the Pagulas wake up and say, you know what, this Kevin Adams experiment, uh, let's, uh, let's cut bait uh, on this one and try to turn the page as quickly as we can. I mean, we, I, I don't know their thinking on that, but they do change their minds pretty quickly. And if somebody gets to them and, and convinces them, uh, I think who knows, maybe Kevin Adams doesn't get to stick around too much longer. You're asking me. This year would be. I'm just rolling it out there for the class. Maybe the next coach should be an experienced hockey guy who could one day become the president and run the show the way so many people have done around this league. That was the thought with Kruger. Well, that that's gone. I don't know whether he ever believed he was going to become president, they were going to hire a real coach or not. But uh, I don't see how in such a short period of time, their, their feelings on, on Adams could change. You knew what you were getting. You were getting a guy in the cheap who had no business being a general manager. And you're going to 
give it a shot. I mean, I would if that's their feeling, they got to give them a longer time than this. He still doesn't have an assistant general manager, and the guy who was filling that role in that de facto assistant general manager role, Charlie Mendola, has been fired. Um, and uh, he was he was let go as somebody who was you know, helping out with the Academy of Hockey or over at Harbor Center. He was let go in the layoffs. I don't know if he was laid off or furloughed. But then Kevin Adams brings him back as his one of his chief allies, and now he's gone. Uh, so now uh, Kevin Adams is naked. You know, he has, he has a trade deadline coming up. Uh, he has one of the more um, coveted players in the game. I'm sure the, the Sharks are, are circling because they see what the, where the Sabres are in the standings. There are teams out there that would love to have Jack Eichel. Uh, and whether he's up for bids or not, he's getting the calls. And do you the want him to 29 other teams? Yeah. That's right. Joke. You're right. The Kraken even maybe they have no assets and they're trying to find a way to get him. Um, yeah. I mean, do you want, do you want Kevin Adams fielding all these calls? I mean, they, they, they have no choice at this point. Kevin Adams is, is got to run this team. He's got to find a goaltender or two or five or seven. I think the half measure they could take, you know, beyond completely moving on from Kevin Adams, because as Sully said, it's, it's so soon to do that. You couldn't have expected this guy to come in and be a seasoned general manager making all these shrewd moves because most of the reason for hiring seemed to be convenience. He was there. He's a bit of a yes man. Uh, he's loyal to them. You know, they brought that up and cheap. You know, I think it was easy. The way to, you know, undermine him a little bit and take away some of his power would be to hire somebody above him uh, as people have been clamoring for around here for a long time. I don't know if they'll do it, but I don't think you can trade Jack Eichel until you've, until you have somebody else in there besides this guy who has not done this before and could very easily get fleeced. If you're trading Jack Eichel, you better get some pieces in return that will help you speed up a rebuild. You, you better not be looking at it in two years saying, gee, I hope Tage Thompson turns a corner here. That would make that O'Reilly trade a little bit easier to, to handle. You can't get those types of players. It needs to be a much higher bar to trade that guy away because I understand everybody wants to push these guys out the door and start fresh, get rid of Reinhardt, get rid of Eichel, get rid of, you know, Skinner, whoever, but, if you're not bringing any talent back on the other end, then in two years, you're saying the same thing. It's, it's the same thing as O'Reilly. Oh, they got to They got to just trade Eichel. Well, you don't have, as Sully said, you don't have to trade Eichel. Like you don't have to do it. You have to get a good return. You have to, you know, find a way to get some assets and get some good players. And right now, Jack Eichel is one of the only good ones they have. So trading him away should not be done lightly and it should not be done by a general manager who's never really done this before because that's a recipe for you know getting fleeced and having to you know set yourself back another few years it, it should be off the table right now for Kevin Adams to make that move and also to trade Jack Eichel right now when he's hurt and having the worst year of his career and probably not at the peak of his value you know if you bring in new people above Kevin Adams or an entirely new regime and they decide it's time to start over, then you may have those conversations and make the move at that time. But I think it would be reckless for the Sabres, for ownership or whoever makes the final decision to decide to trade Jack Eichel right now. It would be the worst. It would be, you know, people joke around about rock bottom and it can't get any lower. That would be it. If they did it at the deadline without any input from anybody other than Kevin Adams, all due respect to him. And, and I think he probably does deserve a little bit more uh, leeway than getting fired, you know, at season's end or before the season's over, but letting him make that trade at the deadline, not only, you know, like you said, Jonah, a pretty bad season for Eichel because he's been banged up, but the Sabres also have pretty much zero leverage, right? Everybody knows that, Kevin Adams is in over his head a little bit. He's flailing. This organization is 
desperate beyond, you know, any other team in the league, the way they're losing the stories that come out of here, the, the way the Pagulas have seemingly just been guessing and, and throwing stuff at the wall. There's no leverage. You, you wait till the off season, you give yourself time. Like I said, it's not a must do. You don't have to get rid of this guy. You, he's a really good player. Is he as good as Connor McDavid? Was he worth everything it, that had to happen to get him? Maybe not, but he's here. He's really good when he's healthy and there's a way to build a team around him. His contract's not, prohibitive so yeah if they do it they have to do it at the right time and they have to get the right return because I just don't see how you can do it at the deadline it would be it would it would shock me and it would be the worst it would be the worst thing that has happened yet it would lower the floor the rock bottom would be even lower you could be like the Braves wait a minute this is right they're at rock bottom and I understand well, what they've been doing. at rock bottom and when, it keeps going you know, lower. I want to wait for the best time to trade Jack Eichel. Wait two more years. His, his agent, if he's not already doing, it, is going to be in there going, get this guy out of here. And that word will be around the league. I think if anything, you're people are overestimating that guy. I don't think he's one of the top 15 players in the NHL. And is he has a lot of talent, but no one wants to even consider he's not that good. And he's certainly not a leader and he's not a winner. And I think what has to be done here is acknowledging these guys aren't winners. And in this sport, if you believe all that crap of, about hockey and the intangibles, you've brought in one after another guy who seems to lack that. And yeah, you, you want to get the most for, for Jack Eichel. I'm just saying, I'm not so sure a year from now, if you brought in the next John Muckler, you'd get a whole lot more. And what they need, by the way, is the next Jack Muckler, John Muckler, a guy with a vision of hockey, a guy who came in to this organization and identified guys like Pekka and Verada, who no one, no one even knew about. And he also found Hashik, who knew the game and the league. They're so far away from that. It's, it's depressing. The current how, John how is Muckler that any might different not than, be much of a drop-off. How's that much of a, how is that any different, though, than the Ryan O'Reilly conversation? You know, that this idea that like, oh, maybe Jack Eichel's not that good. He's not a winner. He, he's not a leader. People said all the same things about Ryan O'Reilly. And then all of a sudden he, he looked like a winner to me when, when he was drinking beer out of the Stanley Cup. Uh, he looked like a leader to me when a year later, you know, he was a huge catalyst to the Blues run to the Stanley Cup. Uh, I'm not saying Jack Eichel is untouchable or he's, you know, the best player in hockey, but it all the stuff people are saying sounds a lot like what people were saying about Ryan O'Reilly. And as it turned out, if everything around him was a little bit better, you know, we've talked about, did Jack Eichel get the the captain, you know, the, the C on his shirt too early? Should he have ever had it? Maybe not. Uh, maybe that's not him, but does that mean he can't be part of a Stanley cup team here? I don't think so. I don't, I don't think you just trade away a good player, a really good player just because you know, a bunch of people have repeated over and over that he's, he doesn't win when all that's ever been around him is what is incompetence, you know, and all that's ever been around him is what, you know, it's got us, it can't be, it can be a combination of things, but it can't be a horribly run organization at the top with terrible general managing and a a vacuum at the president of hockey operations and terrible coaches and no leadership on the team, but also Jack Eichel, all Jack Eichel's fault. So trading him seems counterproductive when, you know, unless you're doing it with a plan. You know, I think about the Flyers getting rid of Jeff Carter and uh, Mike Richards all those years ago. They brought in some guys on the other end. Now, it didn't work out because guess what? Jeff Carter and Mike Richards, those guys were losers and they weren't leaders, but they looked, you know, they looked like winners when they were, you know, drunk with the Stanley cup. You know, it's, it's crazy how that happens. So Jack Eichel might look like a loser now, trade him out of here. And I, I wouldn't be surprised. You see a winner, a, a happy guy, you know, so things around them and the flyers, by the way, haven't won a cup. You know, they got all these good things in return. They end up with Sean Couturier and uh, Wayne Simmons was a good player. And, you know, they got some, some talent back for, for those guys. But those guys helped somebody else win a Stanley Cup. So, and and the, but the Flyers had to do it because those guys weren't buying into the team concept and blah blah blah. 
Well, maybe the team concept is junk junk. Maybe if there's something to buy into those guys will. And it's why I think we're having this exact same conversation that we're criticizing people for having before, you know, the, you got to trade Ryan O'Reilly, you got to sign Jeff Skinner. It's like, you don't have to trade Jack Eichel. And I don't think they should behave that way. Now, could it get to that point if the agent starts making waves and it seems like everyone and their brother has written a, should this, should X team trade for Jack Eichel? Everybody wants him. So if you can get the right return, then sure. But doing it just to do it, I think is, is really foolish. Well, I think this is a good transition because you just mentioned Ryan O'Reilly and not having success, change of scenery. Let's talk about the NFL's Ryan O'Reilly, Mitchell Trubisky, uh, now out of Chicago. He should probably be fitted for his Super Bowl ring right now, um, along with the rest of the Buffalo Bills. Uh, Jerry, your thoughts on Mitchell Trubisky finally escaping Chicago and coming to football heaven in Orchard Park? I think it's a heck of a deal for them. I mean, they, they've got, they've got the money apparently, and it's, it's a reasonable deal. Matt knows more about the money, but I think he's a heck of an athlete. I think that's one of the reasons he was drafted high. Did they overpay for him? Obviously he's, is he a franchise guy? No, but I think as a backup to Josh with his, I would say similar athletic ability. Uh, I think it's a, a great backup. I think the bills have had a deficient backup quarterbacking, for a long, long time, even going back to when I was trying to tell people, even Lawson wasn't even a good NFL backup. Wait, Jerry, are you saying that even when their starters were backups, they were inadequate? Because EJ Manuel was their backup for a little while, and maybe he was, maybe he was even an adequate backup. Uh, yeah, uh, he, he didn't belong. Nathan Peterman was a starter who then became backup. So yeah, you're right. Their backup quarterbacks weren't even good enough to be backups, and yet they were starting. Yeah, and they're lucky that that Josh didn't get hurt last year because this idea, because he played one good game against the Jets, that Barkley could could carry them to the Super Bowl, you know, and do a Nick Foles thing was was ridiculous. The offense would have to change 180 degrees. Yeah, and I think Trubisky is, is capable. How much is he making? I is it two and a half, two and a half million. million, right? Jeez, oh, that's less than you make, Jerry. <laughs> it is, you know, I'm, it's still good money. It's a great deal for the Bills. It's a great deal for both. But well, I mean, Trubisky, uh, I'm curious of what other options he had. So that way we can compare really how great of a deal it is for Trubisky. But uh, if his agent plotted it out to say, look, let's sign this deal now. The TV revenues are going to be announced soon. And when that gets announced, then we'll go for the big contract. You know, the big backup money is coming once, whether you're backup or your starter, he's going to make so much more money now that the salary cap's about to skyrocket with these new TV broad, uh, the new TV rights deals. Um, but yeah, go someplace, kind of rehabilitate your image, um, play for a winner. And it, it builds a little mystique too, because then people wonder, you know, maybe some stuff rubbed off. Uh, you playing for Brian Dable, even if Mitch, Mitchell Trubisky doesn't play it down, people are going to wonder, uh, or people are going to probably say, well, he, yeah, I'm sure he got better just, you know, learning and getting ready and whatever. And maybe then he can recapture that 10 win season that he had as a rookie and all that stuff. But, um, but yeah, it's a great deal for the bills. It seems to be a, a no brainer and uh, a position that they really did need to upgrade. It was overlooked. We, you know, who getting into the backup quarterback situation when Josh Allen is, is in, is in the, in the driver's seat really is not, wasn't there's not a lot of interest in, in talking about that I guess but yeah it seemed like to be sitting there as a, as a glaring need um, for all the reasons that Brandon Bean brought in Mitchell Trubisky I'm more yeah, excited about Matt. Sanders interesting what you guys have to think because I think he's a clear upgrade over what John Brown was this past year and you know veteran receiver it seems to me over the years receivers have been certain ones anyway have been a very effective into the thirties, you know, take care of themselves. Even Beasley at this point, I think their offense is in really good shape. And I, I expect Sanders to be a, a real, a real positive addition. Cheap My only concern down, with right? Sanders and you mentioned Beasley there, the age. And I mean, what if the bills have to go even a couple of games without both of them? I mean, I don't think that that's a stretch to think that somebody has got a calf uh, tweak or a hamstring and you have, 
Stefan Diggs and Gabriel Davis are now your, your two best options, right? Unless I'm missing somebody, but I mean, to, to lose both those guys. So you're, you are risking a little bit because of the age and the fact that these guys have been hurt a little bit, but John Brown's injury situation was had to be maddening for the bills uh, to get ready on a week to week basis to not know whether or not they were going to have this guy. Um, I think that, uh, so for that reason alone, I, I agree with you, Jerry, that, that Sanders is an upgrade. Yeah, but they were old last year. And I, I think I pointed that out once or twice that no team was older than them at wide receiver in their top three. They had two of two of the 30 plus guys, which I don't think any other team did. Now you add another 30 plus guy. They're, they're trying to win now. And I, I don't know. I mean, maybe they'll add someone else in, in free agency or the draft. They did a pretty good job of it last year in the draft. What else yeah, is out there, Matthew? Let, let me leave it to you. Uh, free agency. Uh, we haven't had a show since uh, uh, since things uh, since there since things really got rolling. What's your your take on on what they've done so far in the open period? Not just resigning their guys, uh, because I think that that all happened the last time we had a podcast. Now they've gone out and gotten some some other teams' guys. Yeah, I think because of who they are and what they've built uh the they've really changed what they can do uh now they've they're certainly in a tougher financial situation than they've been in but you know mitchell trubisky coming here for two and a half million dollars and thinking he can rebuild his career in a place where quarterbacks used to go to have their careers ruined, uh, I think is, you know, it says something about who they are and, and what they've done. Now, I'm, I'm curious to see how that'll work out. Um, and, you know, they don't think it was a long-term thing. They think it's just short-term and he'll, you know, springboard this into becoming a starter somewhere. And when you see the money Tyrod Taylor and uh, Andy Dalton have gotten elsewhere, then you think Trubisky probably does, you know, fall in, in line with that. Like you said, Tim, when the money goes up with these new TV deals, he might be in a good spot. But like, it's interesting to think of the Bills as that type of destination when last year that was the Saints with with Jameis Winston going there, taking less money uh, and trying to rebuild his career. So we don't know how much less money. We don't know that there was some sort of crazy bidding war for Mitchell Trubisky's services. Uh, I doubt there was, considering there's a few teams out there that could use a starter and um he certainly would have taken that opportunity first, but you know, all in all, they needed that. They needed to get better. Matt Barkley wasn't good enough and they're paying only slightly more than Matt Barkley. I think the Sanders signing is, is pretty interesting. Um, both he and Cole Beasley, I think can, can do some damage out of the slot. And I'm interested to see what they do when they have four receivers on the field, when everybody's healthy, how big of a role does Sanders have? I don't know because you would think Gabriel Davis has earned that number two job, but they're going to make him fight for it. Clearly they save a little bit of money by going from John Brown to Emmanuel Sanders, not a tremendous amount. They gave him a pretty decent deal, but again, like with Trubisky, the fact that a guy like Sanders wants to come here when there's only potentially one or two years left on his career and he's trying to win it's a, it's a change of pace, uh, I think, for this organization that this guy, you basically are able to get Sanders and the tight end, Jacob Hollister, who they signed for the price of John Brown, which I think is a pretty good trade-off because Sanders seems to take really good care of himself, um, has still been effective in recent years, practices like a madman. If he stays healthy, he'll be an upgrade over John Brown because John Brown couldn't do that last year. So I think it, they're good, subtle moves. The biggest thing to me is, and we sort of touched on this before, you know, the, the tampering window opened, but bringing back that same offensive line, bringing back essentially the same defensive line, you know, are those two spots good enough? Cause I thought in some key games last year, they got beat up in both of those areas and I don't think they should be done addressing those spots. And that's where the Sanders thing to me, it's opportunity cost. It's not Sanders versus John Brown. It's not Sanders for 6 million. It's Sanders for 6 million when Hassan Reddick went for 6 million 
or Sanders for 6 million when an edge rusher, you know, a veteran edge rusher might've gone for 6 million. That's where I think you're, you have to measure that because what do they need more, you know, and, and bringing back this old line again, there's, there's cost associated with that John Feliciano for 5 million or, you know, a guy in the draft and spend that 5 million somewhere else. So as long as they're not, if they go into next season with basically the same offensive and defensive lines, I think that's a pretty big risk. I think they got worse on the defensive line because they got rid of Quentin Jefferson. So they've, they get, they get star back, but they lose Quentin Jefferson. So probably a bit of a wash. That makes a real good point. I think that defensive line is a question as well as they played defensively down the stretch, which they tend to do under McDermott. There were games where they just got run over and they didn't get enough pass rush. I don't know if star Latoule is going to be that much of a difference. We do tend to, and I'm guilty of it here, uh, over react to skilled player additions, wide receiver, backup quarterback, you know, in the trenches, as we like to say in the old days, that's where these games tend to be won. We found that out in the Super Bowl for sure. And, and the AFC Championship. Good point. The, the, in the AFC Championship, they could not get anywhere near Mahomes. Uh, and the Chiefs were all over Josh Allen throughout that game. So, And they sort of addressed both of those spots at the end of the season, you know, when they were talking about uh, this team. And they end up bringing back a pretty similar group. You know, Mario Addison's going to be 34 years old, and he's coming off his lowest sack production uh, in quite a few years. You're counting on a jump from A.J. Epinesa or maybe getting a guy at 30, and then we have people talking about, oh, they got to draft a running back at 30 to put this team over the top, and it's like, so they're just going to go out there and, you know, I think one of those spots needs to be addressed. Number two corner is still a need. Wide receiver wasn't a glaring need, but I get the idea of, you know, don't lose your fastball and, you know, keep it going. But I'd say, you know, draft a guy uh, in the second or third round and let Gabriel Davis take, you know, if your quarterback's that good, he should elevate a number four receiver essentially, because that's what Sanders is going to be. Or maybe, you know, the number two opposite, you know, instead of Gabriel Davis, but I I think you could have found that in the draft and, it's more about what it takes away. It's not really a Sanders thing because I think he's a fine player and I think the money is fine for him. It's just about where else could that have been spent because it was either the next day or, or hours before Hassan Reddick, uh, you know, as a pass rusher slash linebacker went for around six, seven million. It's like, man, if you could have gotten that, uh, throw a couple extra million on it and make it eight to convince him to not go play for his college coach again in Carolina, guy had 12 sacks last year. You know, that's exactly what they're missing. And if you're going to roll the, the ball out there with this same group rushing the passer, I think it's a risk. I, you know, pass rushers can be productive well into their 30s, but you're leaning on two guys in Jerry Hughes and Mario Addison who are going to be 33 and 34. So uh, you're not getting much younger and you're counting on your second round pick at Vanessa or maybe your top 10 pick at Oliver, you know, being the guys that take the jump and give you what you need. Um that and the offensive line, I think, are the two big questions, and they didn't really do anything to answer either one just yet. Before we let Jerry Sullivan go, I want to make sure that we get into uh, his uh, wheelhouse in college basketball. Um, I want to talk about uh, Damon and uh, both their men's and women's teams doing very well in the Division II tournament. Uh, but uh, let's just uh, get your general thoughts, Jerry, on um, – on the division one tournament so far, maybe have some thoughts on St. Bonaventure or maybe even uh, UB just missing out. Um, and then just whatever your general observations might be on the rest of the first couple of rounds. I've been in heaven. You know, me with the, the, the sleepers over the years and wanting these smaller schools to rise up and knock off the big money power schools. Well, there were more 13, 14, 15s to win in the first round than ever before. If, if uh, Rutgers hadn't blown that lead, that one region with Syracuse would be an 8, 10, 11, and 12 seed in the Sweet 16. Loyola, I picked them again to the Final Four. I, I, you know, me, I hate to gloss myself, but I did pick them to the Final Four in 2018. Sister Jean's still there, talked her way into the traveling party, 100 years, one years old. How do you pick against Loyola? And they're a really good team. This is no fluke. They play basketball. 
and they're underrated as opposed to all these big 10 schools that were clearly overestimated. It's, it's a great tournament for that. The, the kind of term I've always, always wanted more of where the, the gap between the big, the big schools and the little guy wasn't, wasn't so great. Um, and a one eight that was Loyola beating Illinois. You know what else is a one eight Damon? They're an eight in the elite eight of division two. I talked to uh, Mike McDonald yesterday doing a story and they're playing a really good team in this, uh, I think it's West Texas A&M. Um, I got that right. West Texas A&M. They've got two really great guards, but good for them. Good for Damon. And the women are there, too. Um, Who are they playing? The women, I haven't looked that up yet. I, uh, you know. You wrote about it. I do know. Lubbock Christian, number one team in women's college, Division Two women's college. Basically. I must have been busy trading for Luca in the, in the fantasy league, Jonah, when uh, yeah, that was a good I should move. have been looking that up. Um, so, great time of year for basketball. Looking forward to the NBA taking off. And I will give Matt some credit for turning me on to a, a book called Bear Town for the readers out there. Matt and I have talked about starting a book club. Bear Town by Frederick Bachman, and they made it into a TV show. It's, it's in Danish subtitles, so, uh, but it's great, and the TV show is great. I'm at that point, you know, during the, I've watched a lot of TV during the pandemic. I watch everything with subtitles now, even the English stuff, well, especially the Brits and the Scots. You, you know, that's barely English. You can't understand them. But when you're old and your hearing's going and you get distracted, having the stuff at the bottom to read, great. So I've a little going off topic here, but uh, did you read the sequel too? I'm on that now. That, yeah, that one was good. I have not watched the TV show yet. I still got a splurge for the uh, HBO subscription, but um, I've been meaning to watch it. It looks like it's pretty good. And well, before we just devolve into uh, book club, um, can we talk about Damon a little bit more? Uh, sure. Jerry, give us a sneak peek of your of your column that's coming up. Well, it starts with Mike McDonald showing up in Evansville. I think it was Monday morning at 2 a.m. and turning on the TV and Hoosiers is playing. Like Mike McDonald, you know, you've dealt with Mike. I mean, you turn on the tape recorder and, you know, he takes care of your column. But if I can't work with that, for starters, he also, like, last it week. It probably we- wasn't true. That's how much I know Mike you know McDonald. He is, he is so, he's so mindful of writing a good story that he said, you know, when I talk to Jerry, I'm going to tell him that Hoosiers was on when I got to my hotel room. Yeah, you might want to check the TV guide, get yeah, a might, second source on that. You might want to Google what was actually showing at 2 o'clock. Well, you've been watching CNN and MSNBC lately, or even Fox. You've realized truth doesn't get in the way of anything nowadays, and it's certainly a good story or, or a good argument in Congress. Uh, so um, also t- last week was the 25th anniversary of Canisius winning. It's getting to the NCAA for the only time in the last some 63 years and Mike was an assistant on that team and there was a kid named Mickey Frazier who he just he'd sworn the year before and they lost I'm going to sit on top of the rim like that other kid did when we lost if we win next year so he does and they win in 96 Massiello's there I'm there and uh, he sits on the rim well Mike told his kids this story and of course one of his players googles the thing gets the picture of Mickey Frazier and passes it around and Mickey Frazier writes an emotional letter to the team just about how you have to treasure this time of your career. And uh, now he, he sent that letter before they win the East Regional and get to the Elite uh, Eight for the first time. So what I'm saying is here is this is it's not a heavy lift for column here. You know, I just have to do some typing. That's why I was able to give you an hour of my time. Yeah, just don't screw it up. <laughs> that's, that's your well, only like, mission on when you, when have, you have that kind of material get real information the way you do <laughs> well only 75 percent of mine's factual i think it's broken people I, here you know your, I, your your piece on mark schmidt was the definitive profile well done i had Over- too much material it actually uh, there's a lot of i oh, it was not the cleanest uh cleanest file i've ever made to my editors but um I was rushing to get it in uh, because the game was Saturday. It had to run on Friday. And uh, yeah, there was a lot of material there. Um, Jonah, your thoughts on, uh, on Damon here before we wrap it up. 
I, I, what do you think of the matchup? I mean, you've taken a look at it. Uh, they're both tough matchups. I mean, West Texas A&M has won more games over the last three years than any other NCAA team. So more than Gonzaga, more than Virginia, right. uh, you know, more than any other team at any level. And Lubbock Christian was national champion in 2019, that would have been, and was undefeated before the tournament last year and undefeated this year. So that's a tough matchup. But it's great for – Damon's the only school with a team in the men's and women's national quarterfinals. And I don't know how often that happens, but that seems like quite the accomplishment, especially for a program that's only been eligible for the Division II tournament for seven years. And as far as the men – Every one of the seniors, including All-American Andrew Cisco, is planning to come back next year. I think the women's team, which is also senior heavy, will probably have a few key players choosing to come back for that bonus year. So this could be the beginning of another big run for the Damon basketball programs next year. You go to right, Mike, Mike Jonah for real information. And should, <laughs> right. And also want to acknowledge the women's coach, Jennifer Banker, who yep. – former Canisius player and coached at Canisius and has coached at Grand Island High School, was a very successful coach there, and then coming to the Division II level. She's coached Division I before as an assistant, but that's, I think, a big jump going from high school to Division II college and has built this team into a – they've been nationally ranked all season long. And she's married to Brett Banker, correct? Yes. Big shot in high school basketball, high school sports. Athletic director for the Kenton schools, yeah. I have his autograph on my uh, varsity basketball plaque from 21 years ago. You have his autograph? Yeah, just a thing that at my parents' house. It, it's it's not even real. It's like printed, but it's got Brett Banker's signature to certify that I played about 10 minutes a game. Hey, let's wrap this up with a philosophical discussion. Jonah and I had this uh, uh conversation last night he's unsure about it I have an answer he seems to have gone one way uh, uh gone opposite my wishes uh Jonah you go this is your conundrum so I'll let you pose the question to the yes to the well answer. when I'm writing it I'm not so sure that the elite I think the elite eight is the elite eight just like the final four the eight teams that are remaining in the big dance the NCAA tournament I, I do acknowledge that there's a women's elite eight and a women's final four but I don't necessarily think there's an elite eight for division two and elite eight for division three and elite eight for junior college and an elite eight for high school and elite eight for basketball camp. I mean, that's a lot of eights. Now we're talking about an elite 128, I think. So I don't know. When does the elite eight start? And when does the elite eight begin? My response to that is, is if, if there's a national champion, then there's an elite eight. That's there's your a national champion eight. of cornhole. So is there an elite? Oh, then it's your cornhole elite eight. You're not confusing it with, Gonzaga. What about the NFL playoffs when it's down to eight teams? Is that an elite eight with two capital E's? It's more of a basketball thing. Yeah, it's an NCAA. Yeah, it's a basketball thing. I'll tell you what being an elite eight is if the Sabres ever get back to the Eastern Conference playoffs. There you go. That would be a final. That's a final four. No, there's uh, eight teams in each conference that make the NHL playoffs, Tim. Oh, but you said the Eastern Conference finals, though, didn't you? Or did I mishear you? I, I may have said that. You know, I'm... I think it's it's individual silos, right? You're an elite eight within your group of teams. Like it was the in Massachusetts high school hockey, it used to be the super eight, is what it was the final eight teams. Which um, is a cool, th- uh, you know, different sports have their different lingos. But I, what I don't necessarily like is when the high schools, they make it to the state semifinals and it's like, we're in the final four. There might be an actual legal answer to this in that it reminds me when Matthew says that they are called the Super 8, they probably can't call themselves the Elite 8 because it's been trademarked. So if the NCAA, but if the NCAA calls it the Elite 8 in Division 2, then capital E for Elite, capital E for 8, it's trademarked. They don't really use it in um, – it, it, it seems like more of a basketball thing, too, and you're right. It's probably – it might be trademarked at the um, – you know, by the NCAA. By the NCAA, for, who's – For basketball, but, like, for Division two, but. they don't use it for hockey, right? They don't – I mean, now it's not as big of a tournament, frozen so it's not – no. But it's the Frozen Four. Yeah, they four. call it the Frozen Four. But I don't know that they use Elite Eight or if there's some other play on – it being cold um, that they use for that or the sweet 16 or, or whatever um, the slippery 16, since it's on ice, I don't know. Um, 
but I don't think they, they do that. So it seems like more of a basketball thing, but I'd say the sheet 16, (laughs) I'd say if you want to, if you're in D2 and you're in the final eight, those are still big fields. Right. So yeah, no, in a normal year, it's a little smaller this year, but yeah, it's the same. I say roll tide, go for it. Elite eight, you know, whatever, whatever makes you happy. Jerry Sullivan from Channel 4 and from the Niagara Gazette. Thanks for joining us. Well, you're welcome. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of someone thanks you for coming on and then you thank them. I, I think it's – I don't like that. It's, you don't it's, want to thank me for the opportunity? I came on your show, you thank me, and I said, you're welcome. If I thank you, then I, we're even. I think you're the big winner here. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It's absolutely true. You're doing me the favor. This is the Elite Four. No, is it five? Four. I can't even count. Give, give five? Me Where's the fifth? Yeah. I, I counted myself. The guy, the guy was doing my basement. He left. So it's not, he's not. So here. it was five for a time. It was five for probably a good, oh God, you for a good 45 minutes. And Sully's under Melinda's account. So it's really, I know. Two. <laughs> That's, you, you notice that, huh? He's like, lurking. I don't, I'm, I don't do much Zoom. And when I do, it's because of her. All right, guys. Thanks for doing this. Uh, we'll catch you next time. To those listening out there or watching on YouTube, thanks for putting up with this. And uh, don't mess as, with Ma- as Matthew Fairburn so eloquently said, "Roll Tide." <laughs> Tim Graham and Friends is brought to you by CTBK CPAs and business consultants. CTBK is a leading accounting firm with a growing team of accountants and business consultants with roots in Amherst, New York. CTBK pairs every project with a focus on a human connection between its team and the client for assurance, accounting, taxes, litigation support, and advice on mergers and acquisitions. CTBK is available and ready to solve any issue your business faces. For a consultation or to request a quote, call 716-630-2400. Again, that's 716-630-2400. CTBK, over a quarter century of proven accounting and business excellence for Western New York and beyond.